So it's all here. The story of our time with the barcode. That was President Lyndon Baines Johnson upon the dedication of his presidential library in 1971. Since then, the library has played host to the biggest names and best minds of our day who have helped to tell the story of our times through candid, revealing conversations with the Barkoff. This podcast delivers them straight to you. Welcome to With the Barkoff. I'm Mark Updegrove. This month marks the centennial of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, granting women the right to vote in our country. To mark the occasion, the LBJ Library and the LBJ Foundation teamed up on a virtual program with the National Archives, the George and Barbara Bush Foundation, the Ronald Reagan Library, the National Constitution Center, the 19th News, and All In Together, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women to fully participate in American political life. In this episode, we bring you two conversations from the program with two iconic women. The first is my interview with the nation's most powerful woman, Speaker of the House of Representatives Nancy Pelosi, who made history in 2007 by becoming the first woman to hold that position. The second, moderated by former White House Press Secretary and Fox News host Dana Perino, is with Condoleezza Rice, the first African-American woman to be National Security Advisor and Secretary of State. Speaker Pelosi and Secretary Rice talk about the women who inspired them, the trails they blazed, and their counsel to young women today to continue the fight for gender equity. Madam Speaker, you have said many times that when you made history by becoming the first woman to become the Speaker of the House of Representatives, you stood on the shoulders of the women who came before you. And I'm wondering, who are the women in history from from whom you drew inspiration? Well, let me just say uh, that many of the women from whom I drew inspiration, starting with my own family, with my mother, uh, were quiet contributors uh, to the greatness of our country, some more famous than others. But I always like to tell the story, since we're talking history, of my first meeting when I went to the White House as a leader. Uh, I've been White House many times as an appropriator, as an intelligence person for years. So I wasn't particularly apprehensive about the meeting, and I didn't think that much about it, just going to another meeting at the White House. But as the door closed behind me in the this room, it was a small room, president, vice president, and the leaders, House and Senate, Democratic and Republican, very small group. As soon as the door closed, I realized that this was unlike any other meeting I'd ever been to in the White House. In fact, it was unlike any meeting any woman had ever been to in the White House because I was there, not appointing of the president, as important as that would be, but by dint of being elected by my colleagues to represent them at the table. And as I sat down, President Bush was president, ever gracious, you know, always gracious, George W. Bush, father too, I loved him. But this was George W. Bush. And um, as he was welcoming me as, you know, a new leader coming to the table, this or that, I felt very closed in at my chair, very closed in at my chair. I never felt anything quite like it. And um, all of a sudden, I realized that on the chair with me was Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott, Sojourner Truth, Alice Paul, you name it, they were all there on the chair with me. And um, 
I could hear them say, at last we have a seat at the table. Hmm. And then they were gone. Never had that experience before or since. Last they were gone. My first thought was, we want more. So those women, those women were so courageous. They took I mean, they took abuse. They they, they were uh, they worked so hard. They had an idea. They had a vision. They had a, a knowledge of why they wanted to get this done. They had a plan to do it. They thought strategically, and they connected with other women and other like-minded people uh, across the country. And it took decades, but they, the ones who started it, made it happen. So I, I just am in awe of the courage that they had. While the 19th Amendment granted women the right to vote in 1920, there were many Americans of color, men and women alike, who were systemically denied that right. Last month, we lost your dear friend and colleague, John Lewis, uh, and there was no greater champion of voting rights than Congressman Lewis. We do this broadcast on the 55th anniversary of the signing of the Voting Rights Act, which President Johnson signed on this day in 1965. But the Voting Rights Act has been weakened in recent years. I'm wondering, Madam Speaker, what steps can Americans take to ensure that we don't have voting suppression in this country and that there are no barriers to the ballot box? Well, I appreciate your asking that question, especially uh, because of our loss of John Lewis, who sacrificed everything for the right to vote because he saw it as a sacred right. I um, I do want to acknowledge that there were many women of color who were part of the suffragist movement as well, who were part of women having the right to vote. But as you indicated, people of color did not enjoy uh, that right, which was owed them. And uh, I had the privilege as leader some years ago in passing in 06, it became law in 07, uh, the Voting Rights Act that President Bush signed. Uh, when we did, we had a bipartisan march down the steps of the Capitol House and Senate, overwhelming support, very few no's at all. And then the court overturned that part of it, uh, part of it, and now we have to replace that. And that is... Um, and it's very sad to think that just a few short years ago, it was completely nonpartisan. And now there's a, an, a, a resistance to passing H.R. 4, which is our bill uh, in the, um, the United States Senate, which has already passed the House. But wasn't Lyndon Johnson just wonderful? The courage he had, again, strategic a vision. He knew what he wanted to do. Who could think more strategically than he? He knew the courage of certain people or not, and he got the job done. And we'll never forget him saying, when we see in the film now, we shall overcome, and he did. Uh, what did it mean to you to become the first woman to hold the position of speaker? And what does it mean to you to hold that position during the centennial year of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution? Well, it's pretty exciting to observe the, 19, the 100th anniversary of, of the women of the 19th Amendment. Uh, 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 to be speaker at this time is a special honor, and to do so at a time when there are over 100 women in the Cong House of Representatives. 
That's quite remarkable. Uh, over 100 women. We made a decision on our side of the aisle that we would do that. So we went from 12 when I got to Congress to 90 now. And now we want more, of course, but a, a big change. The other side is slower, but hopefully they'll come around to that, uh, to, to, to some of that success. But it, it means a great deal because I do believe that there's nothing more, more wholesome or more important to governance and politics in our country than the increased participation of women. Not that women are better than men, but we need the mix at the table, women and people of color. That's why I said that day, we want more. And the, um, the diversity produces such a different result, which has sustainability because it springs from the thinking of many of the people who would be affected by the policy. So what it means to me is a great deal uh, to imagine to be Speaker of the House, first woman at a time, 100 years and, and again, the fight continues. Madam Speaker, at this moment, what is the biggest challenge that women face in our nation? There are a number of them, uh, but to enlarge the issue, uh, I do believe that some we've come to a change. I mean, when I came into politics, into the Congress over 30 years ago, in fact, John Lewis and I were classmates. We've served together for 33 years. It was a different world about women and uh, politics. I didn't, I didn't have any hesitation to be confident about what I could do, but there weren't that many of us. Now, uh, just think of what happened the day after the inauguration. Women marched. It wasn't political and it wasn't organized. It was spontaneous. It was organic. Women marched and they came out all over the world and realized the, their power of their presence just by turning up. Women marched, women women uh, ran, women voted, women won. We have over 100 women in Congress. And I always just say to women, know your power. Know the confidence of who you are. So I would say uh, that if, if anything internalized in women is that they should have the confidence that they can do any job. If it's a problem that men are not accepting that, that's the men's problem. I, I, that's your problem, you know. And what's encouraging, though, is that fathers of daughters, I just met your beautiful daughter, Bella, and the confidence that dads have in their daughters is something that is different. Not that dads didn't have confidence in their daughters, but they were protective and this or that. Now dads think their daughters can do anything. So that's a big that's a big plus, and so sons are raised to to uh, have that same kind of respect. But the there are still obstacles out there, and again, they will be overcome. Mm -hmm. uh, but it it does just take the confidence that women should have and what they could do. So I said, take inventory of who you are. There's nobody like you. You are the most authentic you. And what you, the contribution you can make is different from everyone else. So if you all think that way, just think the difference that you can make. And I don't know, one of these times we will have pretty soon more women in the Democratic caucus anyway than men. And as I say, with all the respect in the world for men. And you, you, you may have answered this, Madam Speaker, but I'm wondering what invite, advice you would want to impart 
those young women in the current generation uh, who want to make the kind of difference that you have made for women in this nation and in the world? Well, the best advice that I can give young women, and I am asked this all the time, is the best advice that I received myself a long time ago. Be yourself. Be yourself. Be you. You are great. Know your power about, have confidence in who you are. And I do um, frequently am asked, if you ruled the world, what one thing would you do? Uh, and I would, I would globally uh, uh, prioritize the education of women and girls throughout mm. the world so that they also will have their confidence to make their contribution because it makes a big difference in their families, in their communities, in their societies, in their countries. So I'm very optimistic about the growing confidence of women. Uh, the investment in their education globally is very important. It's very important. And one specific piece of advice that I give people when they come to Congress is that I always, as leader, speaker, leader, back and forth, have always said to them when we come, I want you to have a security credential, whether it's Veterans Affairs, Armed Services, Intelligence, Homeland Security, uh, Government Reform Subcommittees on, on um, uh, Security. Uh, because for one thing, when you ask about obstacles, sometimes people don't see a woman as a commander-in-chief, right. and they should. But they, it's important for women to not only bring that priority, but to bring the knowledge. So you have a vision about what makes a country strong, how to do so in a peaceful way. But in order to do that, you have to know the territory. And so, again, know yourself in a global sense. Know the security the national security and the economic security issues. Otherwise, people say, oh, you're coming, or we'll get some more things about childcare and this or that. Of course. Mm. Mm. But undertake your place when it comes to being a, a potential commander-in-chief. Take your place in being a potential secretary of the treasury, whatever it is. There isn't any job you can't hold, but you have to have knowledge and judgment and, and people then will respect your judgment. You, you mentioned, Madam Speaker, that um, you know, the, your first piece of advice is be yourself. But I wonder, did it take you a while to find your voice uh, in the political world? I had absolutely zero minus intention of ever running for political office. I mean, it wasn't even something I thought about, nor a neurosurgeon. I mean, it was outside my realm of what I would be doing. Um, that's the other advice I give people. When the opportunity presented itself and people came to me and said, you should run for office, I had not thought about doing it. I didn't even, I had no ambition to do it. But they can tell me, you care about the issues, you can do this, you can do that, you can win. Um, I was ready. I was ready. Hmm. And that's what I say to people, be ready. Then it, it doesn't mean you're sitting there ready to run for office, but you have... You, you, again, you've taken inventory. You know your strengths. You know your priorities. And when you can show what you, your why, know your why, 
Why would you run for office? Know your why. My why is one in five children in America lives in poverty. That's my motivation. I have five children. They're blessed in every way, I think. I think they would share that view. But, uh, but it bothered me that they would live in a world where so many children, and today still, are hungry. This was a great motivator, I know, of President Johnson. And uh, he cared about that so much and made such a difference in that regard. So when I could see the difference public policy could make in lifting up children, that really tipped my scale into saying, okay, I know my why. I know what I care about in terms of how I would get something done in terms of thinking strategically. And I tell you, and I tell this gentleman, when you know your why, mm. you know your what, you know your how to get it done, you will attract support. You will be a leader. We'll end this conversation, Madam Speaker, where we began, which is with those women on whose shoulders you have stood. You had the opportunity to visit Seneca Falls, where the first women's convention was held in 1848. What was that experience like? Oh, it's right. I've been there on more than one occasion. Louise Slaughter, our former congresswoman from the area, had invited us up on a number of occasions. And then I was inducted into the Hall of Fame, which was a big deal. My friends came from all over for that. That really meant a lot to them. Uh, it, it was remarkable. And more than, this is how I was impressed by it. The very first time I went, we had a, um, a park service person, interpreter, who was telling us about when we went to Elizabeth Katie Stanton's house, she had a very, shall we say, forward-thinking father who mm. bought a house, he put it in her name, this and that. She had a lot of children, maybe five, I think. And um, uh, she lived like on a knoll. And down below the knoll were many, uh, it was like shantytown, of many people who came there. They, they were immigrants largely, they worked in the mills. And they, um, she could hear domestic violence. Mm. She could hear domestic violence. That, and that was one of her motivators in terms of women. And she was very smart and this or that. Uh, so um, so that, that was something where a personal experience in, and a family that encouraged her, respected her, was a blessing uh, to all of us, uh, and then she made such a difference with her thinking. And there, she couldn't travel so much with all these children, but she could uh, convey her thinking to others. And of course, uh, there was the Seneca Fall uh, conference, which changed, which made such a big difference. Even uh, Frederick Douglass was there as part as being a suffragist as well as an abolition as well as an abolitionist. So it, going there, it was moving because of the history, but it was also inspiring because it, you could see how a personal experience translated into policy action that would eventually change the lives of people in our country. And let me just say this in closing. What is interesting to me in this 100th anniversary is how some of my friends who are not as, uh, shall we say, involved in all of this as I am, um, were saying to me recently they had no idea that women suffered so much mm. in order to pass 
this amendment. They just didn't know. They didn't know how they were um, just cast aside by their families, how they how they suffered even bad treatment at, at Alice Paul. They didn't know any of it. They just thought it was like a movement. They didn't realize that people paid a price. People paid a price. So that uh, that awareness, it makes the... Uh, the triumph even greater. Uh, and when you think back to what they did, who has the courage now leave home? Mm. Could, that was like, you, there's no way you can leave home without a man and company and all that. Madam Speaker, we thank you for joining us for this keynote conversation. And we thank you for your remarkable service to this nation. Thanks so much. I thank you, and I thank all the organizations who are involved in putting all of this together. Thank you for celebrating something uh, that has helped America reach its value and concern for equality and justice in our country. Thank you all very much. And now our conversation with Dana Perino and Condoleezza Rice. Hello, Madam Secretary. It's such a pleasure to join you, even virtually. It's great to have be with you and, and an honor to be asked to have this conversation with you. Well, it's always great to be with you, Dana. I look forward to it. All right. So I was thinking about this. Um, obviously, the country is going through a lot at the moment. Um, three sort of major crises, right? The pandemic, the economic crisis that fallout from that, and racial strife. Um, and then we have this opportunity in... August of 2020, to look back 100 years uh, to another struggle that uh, America had, and that was women's suffrage. And I think about little girls today learning about this and probably just not understanding that women weren't allowed to vote. And historically, for the, just for some context, what was it like for America going through that time? Well, it was a time that was another one of those inflection points when America was asked to prove that it was going to be true to its founding and true to the great high promises of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Now, to be sure, when the founders, the framers uh, created the Constitution, it was all men being created equal. And I doubt that they thought about uh, the idea that women were created equal, too. But the wonderful story of America has been a story of slowly but surely, including more people in We the People. And so 100 years ago, uh, people like me and people like you were finally included in We the People. And so I just think it's so great that we have a chance to celebrate this uh, 100 year anniversary of another one of those important inflection points uh, where more Americans became a part of We the People. And did did what America go through a hundred years ago, how did that manifest around the world? Did, did, was there a push from, I know, in, of course, in the UK there, or in England, there was the big push. Was that sort of happening, happening simultaneously? And then what from there has continued in terms of helping women around the world be able to have these kinds of rights? Well, the fact is you can only deny people their rights for so long. You can deny them, but they will continuously fight for them, struggle for them, and eventually they will win. And I think that's the story of uh, women's suffrage. And the interesting thing is we tend to think that uh, global 
global messages uh, are uh, confined to our time, that uh, because of the rapidity of communication now, uh, the fact that you can know what's going on in a remote part of the world in very, very quick order, uh, that that's when global messages spread. Well, actually, global messages have been spreading for centuries because word would get out, so to speak, uh, that those women in the United States uh, were fighting for their rights. And this would empower uh, women in other places. And in fact, uh, the women who led the suffragette movement actually thought of themselves as the vanguard of a movement uh, across the known world. And by the known world, I really mean, um, obviously it was uh, still not possible in, in colonial um, territories or the like, but they saw themselves as a vanguard for women in other places. And uh, they drew power from each other as the struggle spread across the globe. The fact is that struggle is still underway. Uh, we see places across uh, the world where women are still not equal, where women are still second-class citizens. Uh, you know, uh, Dana, I spent a lot of time in the Middle East mm -hmm. and the suffrage movement that had, uh, had swept the United States and uh, brought to power women in elected office and uh, made possible women secretaries of state I found myself in Kuwait in uh, 2005, 2006, talking to women who were running for office for the first time in Kuwait. And so this is a struggle that goes on. Um, yeah. in, in some places, by the way, the right to vote doesn't necessarily mean that the vote matters. And so that's the other struggle that's going on in, in place. I'm smiling because that was the anecdote I had remembered that I was going to ask you about. Um, it, I, I think it was 2006, uh, we were in Kuwait and President Bush had um, a little time on his schedule before his next uh, event. And he had a choice, he could go see the Little League team or he could go visit with the women from Kuwait who were the first to have ever run for office. And so I was in the room with them just before he came in and they were so nervous to meet him. And when he came in, he gathered them around and he said, I am so proud of you. And they said, but we lost. All of us lost our first race. And he said, I lost my first race too. <laughs> yes. And I wonder about as um, sort, of the, sort of populism and nationalism takes hold around the world. What, what about those other countries? And do, does America and American women, do we still have a responsibility to try to help others who haven't had such an opportunity yet? My view, my strong view, uh, is that we are so blessed in the United States to have the rights that we have, um, but our work will never be complete until those rights are truly universal. If we believe they're universal, then we have to fight for them for everyone. And I know we're going through a difficult time right now and people say, well, do people still look to the United States? I can assure you, people still look to the United States as a place where we fight for our rights, we believe in our rights, and uh, that is inspiring to people across the world. Now, if you remember the women in Kuwait then won in the next uh, set of elections, and I remember having some conversations with them about how you had to court men voters too, not just win women voters. And so we actually have had programs uh, through the uh, National Endowment for Democracy set up under Ronald Reagan. Uh, it has a National Democratic Institute. It has a Republican um, 
counterpart. And they have gone to work with women civil society leaders to help them prepare for elections, to help them get better at it. And so that's one thing that we can do. We can actually take our experience and help women abroad who don't even quite know how to organize to win an election to do so. But there's another sadder story. And I hope that we are very focused on how bad it was for women in Afghanistan uh, when the attacks took place on 9-11 here in the United States, the Taliban was in power in Afghanistan. This was a place where girls could not go to school. This was a place where women were executed in a stadium given to the Taliban by the United Nations. And while that has been a harder struggle than I think any of us perhaps anticipated, women have gained rights in Afghanistan and we cannot abandon them. Mm-hmm. Maybe we could talk a little bit about that. I know you're, um, you have been long focused on education, the importance of education. Um, that's obviously a global issue, but it's also something that we have to focus on here in America. When it comes to voter education, um, what do people need, need to be focused on there? I hope that when we talk about voter education, we're also talking about civic education. I would like every American voter to really understand how her vote matters to the outcomes that she wants for her life, for her children. Uh, Very often uh, we, we talk about the vote, but we talk about it in isolation. Of course, what it is doing is in our very highly institutionalized system that the founders left to us, it is giving us a voice through others. So who you elect to the Congress to represent you, who you elect to your local school board to represent your children. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have to think about the vote in the context of institutions. And sometimes I think um, Americans don't know well enough their own institutions and how they function. I hear very often sometimes, and you hear this about the vote in other countries too. Well, a vote is not, election is not democracy. That's right. But I don't know how you have a democracy without an election. What the election does is it gives you a voice with the people who are going to represent you. And I think Americans don't know enough about their institutions. So I think of voter education is also civic education. Do you really know what the legislative process is, for instance? Mm-hmm. So your entire career, people have been trying to push you into running for office and you have resisted that call um, for very good reasons, I think, then uh, that you explain in your books. Um, but I was thinking about the administration that we worked together in, in Bush 43, and then of course you were with Bush 41. Um, there's a lot of ways for women to participate in government and in their democracy that don't have to include running for elected office. So I think that that's important and wonderful, and I'd love to see more women running. But maybe talk a little bit about people's participation short of throwing their name on the ballot. Well, you're absolutely right, Dana. First of all, let me just underscore what you said. We need more women to run and we need them to run across the political spectrum because one of the things we have to remember is that uh, women's issues so forth are America's issues. And so uh, to the degree that women are really a part of the process, it's, it's going to matter. 
but you can serve in all kinds of ways. Um, you know, I'm fortunate, uh, Hillary Clinton, Madeleine Albright, uh, we got to serve at the highest levels as America's diplomats. Um, that would have been unthinkable uh, just a few decades ago. Uh, women can, of course, uh, go into the civil service and serve their government. So one of the things that I worked very hard on is making the foreign service more representative of America. And we have a lot of work to do with women. We have even more work to do with underrepresented minorities to try to make uh, the foreign service look like America. So you can work for the federal government, you can work for the state go government, for local governments, but we shouldn't underestimate the importance of those commissions and those school boards uh, that really are closest to the governance of the people. And uh, so I would encourage any uh, young woman who's thinking about a role in public service to do that. And then of course, we've also got a great civil society uh, the organization that we're uh, that we're here with today, great opportunities for people to serve in non-governmental ways, but to still serve the country. I wonder if you could maybe tell us a story or, or just your reflection of what it was like to be the first. You're, you're often the first, right? Condi Rice has a lot of firsts under her belt. Um, but many women, even if it's not a first, they feel like they are trying to thrive in a male-dominated field because maybe they're the only or one of the only. How do you advise your students at Stanford or women that you talk to about dealing with being a first or an only? Well, the first thing to remember about a first is nobody actually sets out to be the first. You set out to do something and then you learn, oh, I'm the first. I had this conversation with my great friend, uh, the late uh, Sally Ride, who was the first woman in space. And she said, I, I didn't set out to be the first woman in space. I just wanted to be in space. And so if you remember that, then you're less intimidated by the fact that you are the first because you're obviously there because you're qualified to be there. You're there because you've worked hard to get there. And you have to have a sense, uh, an internal sense, a, a deep core sense, I belong here. And you have to walk in that room and own the room. Now it helps to be prepared. I grew up in segregated Birmingham, Alabama, another great struggle uh, to make uh, America more inclusive. And so my parents always told me, uh, first of all, you have to be twice as good, they would say. Now, they didn't say that, Dana, as a matter of debate. They said that as a matter of fact. So you go around trying to be twice as good, you work twice as hard, and then you're twice as confident. They also said there are no victims. The minute you think of yourself as a victim, you have given control of your life to someone else. You may not be able to control your circumstances, but you can control your response to your circumstances. So I had this kind of armor if you will, about encountering people who thought less of me because I looked different. And my armor then, I think, prepared me to walk into that room and say, I'm not going to let your prejudice be my prejudice. I'm going to do my work. I'm going to work hard. And by the way, I was very fortunate to have mentors who really advocated for me. Uh, one of the great mentors was, of course, Brent Scowcroft, who was the uh, National Security Advisor to President George H.W. Bush. And um, Brent Scowcroft took me under his wing as a young uh, assistant professor at Stanford uh, in the early 1980s. And 
he really did help to advocate for my career. We have to remember, nobody, quote, gets there on their own. There are always people who are part of the mentors. And I would say this to young women. I know it's hard when you see a field that you want to excel in and there isn't anybody who looks like you. But if I'd been waiting for a Black female Soviet specialist role model, <laughs> I'd still be waiting. Uh, my role models, my mentors were white men. They were old white men because that's who dominated my field. So sometimes your role model or your mentor may not look like you. And just one word about the greatness of, of having the right mentors. I have to say that uh, George H.W. Bush was a terrific mentor. And I just want to tell one little story about that. Um, when we first met Gorbachev in uh, December of 1989, it was a turbulent time. The Cold War was ending. Germany was about to unify. And President Bush said to Gorbachev, I want you to meet Condoleezza Rice. She's a professor at Stanford. She's my Soviet specialist. She tells me everything I know about the Soviet Union. And Gorbachev sort of tilted his head and he said in Russian, well, I hope she knows a lot. But the fact is, he wasn't, President Bush wasn't talking to Gorbachev. He was talking to everybody in that room. Mm -hmm. And he was saying, this is the person I listen to. So you had better listen to. Mentors can do a lot to break down barriers around race or around gender by just advocating for people that they believe in. I don't know if you'll remember this, but I saw something like that during the 43 years. It was towards the end. Do you remember when the Israelis thought that there might be some daylight between what you were telling them and what President Bush was telling them. Yes. And do you remember how short that meeting was when the Israelis <laughs> came in? And maybe if you remember, I'll let you tell it because for me, just, I never said a word, but I thought that's how you empower somebody else. And I was so, so glad I witnessed that. That's right. No, President Bush 43, uh, the Israelis had this way sometimes of trying to, particularly if you were Secretary of State and the, the you know, dis distance between the White House and the Secretary of State. And um, I remember that the Prime Minister uh, came in and he complained about me, essentially. And uh, the President just uh, said, well, you know, I think you're going to need to work that out with Condi. End of story, right? End of story. Even a little more pointed. He yes. said, he said, let me tell you, if you ever think that there is daylight between my secretary of state and me, you are wrong. That's right. And then he basically was like, you can see yourselves out. You're right. Right. Oh, so so great. And by the way, go work it out with her. You don't need to talk to me. Right. Yeah. And you know, Dana, I know that you were in an extraordinary position because I remember when our great friend Tony Snow was long, no longer mm -hmm. Uh, able to be press secretary. You were a young woman mm -hmm. and uh, handing the reins to you with the viciousness of the press sometimes <laughs> and uh, just saying, I trust you. You know, that was very much who. Well, I tell a story about that, um, that you played a big role in that for me. Um, I mean, I remember one time being in the situation room and some complaints from the military that we had a communications problem in Iraq. And I caught your, your we caught met eyes and you just gave a little nod of your head. And it was, I felt like, I don't know if this you were doing this. I felt like you were telling me you have a seat at the table for a reason. So this is your shot. Speak up. So 
I did and suggested that if the facts got better, then this communications would get better. But also in meetings when I knew I was going to have to go take press questions, complicated, national security, say this, say that, say that. And several times you would say, I'll walk with you. And then you walked with me from there to my office and said, this is how I might say it. And I, I just want to, I want to thank you publicly for that. But I also think it's a great example of what women can continue to do to help one another through mentorship and support. Um, as we mark this amazing 100th anniversary, my great grandmother was in Wyoming. She was the first in our family to be allowed to vote. Um, they had homesteaded in the late 1800s. And of course, rural America wanted those women to vote. Um, and they got that. But it, it's just um, a real pleasure. And I think the only thing that we can ask, and I'll give you the last word after this because we're going to wrap it up, um, is that in order to keep it going, we have to help one another. I could not underscore that more. And what those women hoped for when they started to advocate for the right to vote, when um, they had to go sometimes against the wishes of their fathers or their husbands to advocate for the right to vote, and when they finally won the right to vote, um, I doubt that any, any one of them thought that the struggle was over then. And the struggle continues. It continues for women's rights and for women's empowerment in our own country. And it certainly continues for women's rights and women's empowerment in countries where women are still not full mm -hmm. citizens. Mm -hmm. And so we have a lot of work to do. And the one thing we can take from the experience of those women 100 years ago is it doesn't get done by one person. It gets done by a whole bunch of people. And um, the sisterhood is as important today as it was then. My thanks to Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Secretary Condoleezza Rice, and Dana Perino. Thanks also to our sponsors, St. David's Healthcare and the Moody Foundation. And thanks to you for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Mark Uptegrove. See you next time.